This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting, and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 268, and I'm joined by Christy Harrison, author of Anti-Diet and most recently, The Wellness Trap. We're talking about why as a culture, we're so obsessed with wellness and how social media perpetuates this. We're also debunking some of the more common wellness claims and what to watch out for so that you don't fall into the wellness trap. You can find all the links and resources mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 268. I want to give a shout out to Ole Picotter who left this review. I'm here as a counselor listening to these podcasts for myself, my daughter, and my clients. I love her research-based humanistic approach to how to work with yourself in the body you're in. She is so well-spoken, informed on social justice issues, including race and privilege, and she really understands the way the brain and human behavior works. I'll be listening to as many of these as I can and share this with my clients who struggle with these issues. Thank you so much. That review is really, really meaningful to me. I mean, it's everything I want this show to be. So I really appreciate that feedback and that you took the time to leave that review. You can leave a review for this podcast by going to Apple Podcasts, search for Eat the Rules, then click to leave a review or give it a rating. A review is always preferred because I'll read it on the show. And uh, it doesn't have to be a long one. It just can be one sentence like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> Don't forget to grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. And if you are somebody who works with people who may also have body image struggles, so if you're a dietitian, a coach, a therapist, an educator, a personal trainer, a naturopathic doctor, like I'm just trying to think of all the people that I've worked with around this, but we have a free body image coaching roadmap for you at summerinandin.com forward slash roadmap. And that gives you a way of understanding how to take your clients through a process in terms of working with them with body image struggles. I am really excited to have Christy back on the show. She's been on the show a couple of times before. The first time, many, many years ago, episode 71, that's going way, way back. 
That might even be when I had the Guns N' Roses intro. And then episode 170, which we did a couple years ago when Anti-Diet came out. And that one's called Anti-Diet and Intuitive Eating 101 with Christy Harrison, which is like a really, really good episode if you need uh, kind of a, a great overall summary of the, of, you know, why dieting, why diets fail and really looking into like, quote unquote, the obesity epidemic and things like that. So that's an amazing episode to check out. So I'm thrilled to have her back on the show today uh, to promote her latest book, The Wellness Trap. I really enjoyed reading this, especially because I came from a background in as a holistic nutritionist. And so many of the things that she really critiques and looks at what the research actually says are things that I learned in school which is really, really interesting because those are things that are probably still being taught. They're pretty prolific within the, the natural wellness field. And it's interesting because I kind of sit in the middle on this because I've actually had some incredible experiences with naturopathic doctors. Of course, with any of those, I've really had some firm boundaries. Like I'm not going to make any changes with food and it's really been around like hormone stuff that they've helped me with. And specifically the first one was the first practitioner to actually say, Hey, you have a disordered relationship with food and you're, and you're over-exercising and you need to eat a lot more than you're eating. So I, sometimes I honestly think that that one naturopathic doctor kind of saved my life. Cause I'd been to so many other actual doctors who had told me that I, my body size was too big to uh, have hypo hypothalamic amenorrhea. That's what it's called, right? Anyways, I digress. But the point is, is that when we look at kind of the overall things that are suggested within wellness culture, a lot of them can kind of send us down this dark path. But there's also some good practitioners out there, if you can find them. Christy Harrison is a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and journalist who has been covering food, nutrition, and health for more than 20 years. She is the author of two books, The Wellness Trap and Anti-Diet, and the producer and host of the podcast, Rethinking Wellness and Food Psych, which have helped tens of thousands of people around the world think critically about diet and wellness culture and develop more peaceful relationships with food. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Self, BuzzFeed, Refinery29, Gourmet, Slate, The Food Network, and many other publications, and her work is regularly featured in national print and broadcast media. You can find more about Christy at christyharrison.com. Let's get started with the show. Hi, Christy. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Summer. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you here today and to talk about your new book, The Wellness Trap. Before we dive into some of the concepts that you talk about in the book, I'd love for you to just share maybe just a little bit about your own personal experience with, with wellness in kind of quotation marks. Like, what was your own journey with that that then ultimately led you down the road, obviously, to, to get into the work that you do now? Yeah, such a great question. So I have multiple chronic health conditions that I've been managing for, you know, a couple decades now. And I initially started to uh, experience symptoms when I had just started dieting and developed disordered eating and sort of undiagnosed eating disorder behaviors, really. And you know, unbeknownst to me, I think that was at the root of a lot of it, or at least that was what triggered some of these chronic conditions, but they've stuck around and they're things that, you know, wellness culture really loves to target like autoimmune conditions, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is like autoimmune and hormonal. So there's that piece too, like hormone health and 
you know, how wellness culture targets that digestive disorders, eczema, acne, like skin conditions, you know, lots of things that sort of exist in this this targeted space of wellness culture. Wellness culture loves to like offer solutions in the form of often diets and supplements and unproven, untested practices. And so I really fell into that hard because I was feeling dismissed and unheard by the conventional healthcare system. I felt like doctors were not getting it. They didn't know what to do with me. I was like bouncing from doctor to doctor and just not really getting the relief and support that I wanted and that I deserved, you know, and nobody was, nobody was picking up on really the connection with disordered eating either. And so I think that's something that could also have helped my experience, but nobody was, nobody knew what to do with me. And so I was very attracted to, you know, natural, quote unquote, natural protocols. I think it also dovetailed with where I was in my life and my career at the time which I was had, you know, just graduated college, was a young journalist covering environmental issues, nutrition, health, sustainable food. You know, I was like very in the mix with all of that stuff and like thinking about food systems in, in the sort of Michael Pollan, Marion Nussel way that was trendy at the time and, you know, blaming food for um, causing people to gain weight and, you know, seeing things through the lens of a quote unquote obesity epidemic, which I now know is such a stigmatizing way of framing things, but I really believed in it at the time. And so, you know, it was all tangled up with like my own issues. And I tried to heal my issues, quote unquote, naturally because of sort of those pre-existing beliefs that I had about food and about, you know, the sort of moral virtue and value of doing things, quote unquote, naturally. And because I was feeling so dismissed by the conventional healthcare system that I kind of felt like I had no choice. So, you know, I found a lot of, it was, it was really early. Well, some of it was pre-social media, but like also really early days of social media of like Friendster and MySpace and, you know, Facebook didn't even exist yet when I was first struggling with these conditions and social media, as we know, it didn't really exist. It was more like social networking. You know, it was just like finding your friends online. It wasn't algorithms driving people down rabbit holes. And so I was able to, even though I found my way to a lot of like really extreme sort of wellness content at the time, it wasn't mainstream. It was very fringy. And I was able to kind of think, oh, this isn't really for me. Like, I don't feel like this resonates. And kind of walk back from some of it pretty easily. I did get very hooked with like gluten-free diets and other elimination diets and the idea of cutting out food and managing everything through food. So that piece was really sticky for me. But like some of the other stuff, other sort of more non-standard protocols and stuff I, I wasn't as hooked by. But now I see so many people getting hooked into this stuff that was so on the fringes back when I was first struggling and first looking for answers. And so that was a big motivation in writing this book is that like I, I've seen so many people over the years and I think increasingly in recent years coming to me and saying, you know, I have chronic candida or I have adrenal fatigue or I have, you know, leaky gut syndrome diagnosed by my naturopath or my functional medicine doctor or a questionnaire. And, you know, what do I do about it? Like, like I've, I've been prescribed all these diets and it's 
ruining my relationship with food and like help me help me heal my relationship with food, even when I have to do these quote unquote medically necessary diets. And so that was a big piece of it was like starting to do that research and seeing that these supposed conditions that people had weren't really validated by good evidence and that they were being used to sell these protocols and supplements and practices that were also not you know, scientifically well supported and causing a lot of harm to people's relationships with food in their bodies. And another piece of why I wanted to write this book was that, you know, in 2020 with a pandemic, I started to see how wellness culture was really seizing on that to sell people products and, you know, promote like multi-level marketing schemes and all of these things that just are so potentially detrimental to people's well-being and have no good evidence behind them. You know, people selling their essential oil as a supposed COVID cure or their vitamin protocol or detox as like a way to avoid getting it. And, you know, that was all happening kind of at the same time as as the pandemic was really shining a light on the social determinants of health and how important those are for you know, overall population well-being and how like the people who were already the most marginalized were the ones getting the sickest and getting sicker in greater numbers. And, you know, the people who were able to like work from home or, you know, stay home and not engage outside and like order in all their groceries and stuff like that were the people who were staying safer. So it was just this interesting juxtaposition, I think, of like this all this wellness rhetoric with sort of the pandemic shining such a stark light on the importance of social determinants of health for actual well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good explanation for it. And so you mentioned a couple of your own personal reasons about kind of getting into, you know, going down on sort of the wellness rabbit hole, like being dismissed and, and unheard, which I think so many of us can relate to and particularly anyone who is of like a more marginalized identity is going to face that even more so. But why do you think like culturally we continue to kind of become more and more obsessed with wellness? Mm, Yeah, I think there's, it's a couple of things. I think it's like at the systemic level, there really are failings of the conventional healthcare system. You know, I think people feel unheard and dismissed in sort of high numbers a lot in a lot of cases. And also, even if they don't, like even if they feel like they're getting decent care from their doctor, there's just not really a lot of time in the healthcare system. You know, I I say the healthcare system, like I'm speaking from a US lens and I know you're in Canada, but even though they're very different healthcare systems, I think, you know, our healthcare system being for profit still has something in common with other like national healthcare systems in the sense that doctors are so overworked and overbooked that they really don't have time in any of these healthcare systems to give adequate attention to patients, I think. And people, you know, in national healthcare systems often are on really long waiting lists to get access to a doctor. And so it can be super frustrating, I think, when you finally do get there to have the doctor say, well, I'm not really sure what's wrong with you. Go see this specialist and wait another year or something, you know. And in the U.S., like even if you don't, you know, have long waiting lists or whatever, there's like lack of access for other reasons, like lack of insurance or, you know, just lack of geographical access to providers and things like that. So I think there's those systemic failings that, you know, make the conventional healthcare system. And that's not not to say, you know, that's to say nothing of um, the discrimination that exists in the conventional healthcare system and the anti-fat bias and racism and other forms of discrimination that people experience when they go to the doctor that is also something that drives people away from that system. And so I think when people are feeling 
failed by conventional medicine. Wellness culture is sort of right there to sell them an alternative. And wellness culture often capitalizes on that, I think, on, on the failings of conventional healthcare. You know, I think there's a lot of amplification of like the problems with a conventional healthcare system, the problems with the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, blaming big pharma and the medical industrial complex for all kinds of things, which, you know, again, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And I think it's unfortunate that there are so many failings in the conventional system. And I think we need to fix that and change that. And the, the promises that wellness culture is offering often don't fail to deliver. Often the, the products and practices and services are not actually effective and can, can in fact cause harm. One thing that I think the alternative um, systems do well, though, is give empathy and time. You know, that's something that I think we don't see as much of in the conventional system. And I think again and again in my reporting and also in my personal experience, I've found that when you go to like an alternative practitioner, when you go to an acupuncturist or a chiropractor or a naturopath or someone who's in the more like integrative space where they're doing alternative medicine under the auspices of medical doctors, like, you know, functional medicine providers or integrative medicine doctors, that you do see a lot more empathy and time given given to you in those spaces. And it can feel really great. And it can feel like, you know, finally, someone's taking me seriously. Finally, someone is going to get to the bottom of this. And my symptoms aren't being dismissed. I'm actually being heard. And that goes a long way to helping people feel better. There's actually something called the care effect, which is like part of a family of placebo effects where, you know, expectations and sort of how you feel in a situation or how you expect to feel given a particular treatment can actually have a physical impact on your body. It's not all in your head. It's actually the mind-body connection at work. And um, so with the care effect, you know, having an empathetic care provider who makes you feel heard and understood can definitely create some pain relief and create some symptom relief. And so I think that's one aspect of it that's that's really attractive to people. I think another reason for this proliferation of wellness culture is that social media algorithms are really driving people towards kind of more and more extreme wellness content so that the things that were really on the fringes back, you know, 20 years ago or whenever I was searching for answers, you know, at first, now those things have become so mainstream and we have things that are even more bizarre and fringy, like, you know, the medical medium saying that he talks to a spirit who tells him how to diagnose people and that, you know, celery juice is the cure to all ills and science hasn't caught up with that yet. And so like, don't worry about the fact that there's no studies to prove it. A spirit told me and, you know, it's just like super bizarre out there stuff that I think really works well on social media because the algorithms are designed to amplify and promote content that is, you know, novel, that sort of like gets these outraged responses or like shocked responses from people, gets people debating in the comments, um, stuff that's, you know, polarizing or controversial and, you know, all misinformation really um, hits all those notes that social media is sort of designed to promote and foster. And really the reason that the algorithms drive us toward that kind of content in the first place is not because they're designed with any sort of nefarious intent, but because they're designed to just maximize engagement and keep us on the platforms, liking, clicking, sharing, so that we'll be exposed to more advertising and therefore the platforms make more money because that's how they, that's their business model. And, you know, it just so happens that this outrage inducing content, this novel content, you know, misinformation really hits all the notes that drive engagement. And so I think that's another big piece of why wellness culture has become so prevalent is that 
people are seeing these more and more extreme things on social media and, you know, that also are getting picked up by, well, there's, you know, this sort of ecosystem, really, this media ecosystem where websites like Goop or, you know, other sort of wellnessy websites are writing headlines and, you know, design and, and putting up stories and stuff that are designed to take advantage of that algorithmic juice that's given to, you know, novel, controversial, sort of wacky things. And so, you know, you get a lot of these really out there, extreme sort of wellness practices and protocols becoming more and more mainstream as people are sharing them and they're going viral. And, you know, it's just become such a part of the zeitgeist now to think about, you know, like to treat food as medicine. I think that wasn't part of the conversation in the way it is now 20 years ago, certainly um, not as mainstream, you know, and, and some of these really out there things that maybe I'm not going to say like a lot of, a lot of examples, because I don't want to, you know, give people ideas or um, activate disordered behaviors or thoughts in anyone. But, you know, even some of the really out there stuff is, is now much more mainstream and common. And you might hear, you know, your mom or your dentist or whatever talking about it, you know. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like Dr. Oz was like really kind of the initiator for a lot of this in terms of it becoming so mainstream. But um, yeah, I yeah, feel, he did a lot. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I feel a lot of this is it almost like mirrors kind of the magical thinking of diet culture, right? Like where you have, okay, if you just do these, these things, then everything, you know, you lose weight and your life will be perfect and you'll be happy and, and confident and all this other stuff. And this is almost similar. It's like, if you do these things, then you will be like, well, you will be able to relieve yourself of all these symptoms and everything will be better. And so I think it, it kind of anchors people in this idea of like hope of like, okay, if I do this, then I can have more vitality or I can live longer or I can, you know, not be in, in pain. And like, we know how powerful that is in terms of the dieting cycle. And I feel like this mirrors that in a very similar way and sucks people in. Totally. Yeah. I think it, it's, it really creates this sense of, you know, individual responsibility and choice and like you're in charge of your own wellness and you get to pick and choose your wellness protocols and practices in order to like optimize your wellness and your physical body. And that is really appealing. I think when people don't have hope and when they're feeling like disempowered by the conventional healthcare system and, and like they don't have any answers or relief, you know, to, to say, well, you can do all these things and you'll be well, you'll, you know, reduce your symptoms or even put your disease into remission. You know, that's a, a line of rhetoric we're seeing a lot in wellness culture now is like you can reverse chronic disease, you can reverse aging, you know. And so I think that's incredibly appealing when you don't have other good answers. But even for people without chronic conditions, I think there's like this medicalization that happens in wellness culture and it happens in conventional healthcare too, where, you know, just sort of everyday symptoms that people might experience like bloating or fatigue or, you know, difficulty concentrating some of the time or whatever, or, you know, just like any, any number of things that are sort of garden variety, human ailments, you know, occasional uh, heartburn, whatever. Those things are now framed as signs of unwellness and signs of toxicity in the body. And, you know, you have to sort of root out, like get to the root cause of those things. And there's this rhetoric that I think is really seductive in wellness culture that I know I fell for, which was like, 
you don't have to live like this. You don't have to deal with these things. You know, you're, you can feel so much better than you do. And when you're feeling like profound chronic illness, I think that is incredibly seductive. But even if you're just experiencing these sort of everyday ailments in a culture that makes us feel so ashamed for having them and so ashamed for having bodies, you know, and for having like stomachs that get a little round after we eat or, you know, that are round in general or whatever and get rounder at the end of the day, right, from bloating, you know, or feel bad about our our like gas or our burps or whatever it is. I think it becomes it becomes really appealing too to say like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have to live like this. Like I shouldn't have bloating, you know, I my stomach should not look this way. And there's so much anti-fat bias baked into that too, with this notion that like a flat stomach is a good stomach, a well stomach or whatever. But I think it's, you know, there's there's so many restrictive ideas and oppressive ideas about what a well body looks like in general and what a well body should function like, that it's just sort of like sucks everyone in, I think, because in this culture, in wellness culture, like you're never well enough and you're always, there's always more you could be doing, you know, you always have to be optimizing. So I think it's like, it's just a a losing proposition. And I think about people like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow with all the money in the world and, you know, who's like an acolyte of all these wellness protocols. And yet she's still chronically ill. She still struggles. She still, you know, it takes up so much of her life. It's literally something she's built her business on, her entire kind of brand and empire. And yet, you know, she's still struggling. She's still not, quote unquote, well by wellness culture standards. And so it's like, what are we even striving for here? What is like the goal? The goalposts are always moving and and you can never quite get there. Yeah. And like, I mean, similar to dieting, it takes away so much time and energy to constantly be fixating on it. Like I remember kind of being down that rabbit hole as well. And similar to you, a lot of my issues were actually the result of disordered eating and just like going so obsessed with it because I was just like, there has to be like a reason. There has to be something I'm missing here. And I think that there's this overall belief now of like, you should be able to kind of like heal yourself. Like you, you, you should be able to like get to the root cause and figure it out when like through natural means, right? Whereas like, you know, as you talk about a lot in your book and you kind of dispel a lot of the specific things, the different kind of protocols and things that get recommended, but it's just not true. And we kind of, you know, the, the solution becomes the problem when you start to like, when it starts to kind of take up so much time and space to, to figure these things out when like you could really just turn to conventional medicine and maybe get like, you know, some sort of like actual medication that might help you, you know? And I know that that's not always like, and just an easy solution either. And that sometimes like a lot of these medications have horrible side effects and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I just, I feel like there's this belief of like, you, you should be able to heal this. And I remember that when I was a nutritionist, like, thinking that and thinking like, this is why I want to do this because people can just be well, you know, like people can heal themselves. And so it came from really good intentions, but was obviously like really misguided. Yeah, totally. I think about like the research on social determinants of health and how it shows that at the population level, when it comes to like modifiable determinants of health, things that we have any control over at the societal or individual level, 
individual behaviors only account for 30% of the pie and only 10% is food and exercise combined. And then 90% is other things, you know, including 70% is, is social determinants of health. And I think in diet and wellness culture, we have that image reversed. We think that like 90% of the pie or more is food and exercise, you know, and maybe the small sliver is, is other things that, you know, are other types of behaviors we could do or societal stuff. But yeah, it's just interesting how how deeply rooted that belief is and how central it is to so many people's, you know, philosophies and practices. Like as a dietitian as well, I, I definitely believed that, you know, first go, when I first went into it, just thinking that like I could help people heal themselves through food or prevent any sort of chronic disease from setting in if they just ate the right things. You know, there's this really seductive idea that you can that food is medicine and that you can treat anything through food and maybe also, you know, exercise and supplements and related kind of protocols. But um, there's this idea that like, you know, you're really getting to the root cause if you're dealing with food and exercise and supplements and stuff, which is, you know, I think about like how appealing that idea of a root cause is again, when you're feeling dismissed by conventional healthcare or that like the only solutions conventional healthcare has for you is just, yeah, take this pharmaceutical that has some pretty nasty side effects or that isn't totally effective. We really don't know a lot else to treat your condition or we don't know what it is. So we don't even know how to treat it. You know, that doesn't feel super satisfying. And when someone says to you, like, we're going to get to the root cause, we're not just going to treat the symptoms and we're going to treat you as a whole person. We're not going to just silo you into different parts and systems and have you, you know, work with one person for your digestive stuff and another person for your endocrine stuff and whatever. We're going to like look at you as a whole person. That is so appealing. That's like so what we want, I think, in those situations. But the reality is so different. And I think actually the so-called root cause in so much of alternative and integrative and functional medicine is just predetermined. It's just, you know, the root cause always is deemed to be food and supplements and exercise maybe, but, you know, mostly food. And, you know, that's actually not treating the whole person. That's actually not seeing the person's unique situation. And, you know, I talked to many people in the book for whom that was really a harmful approach that, you know, it led them to significantly disordered eating. And it also missed what was actually going on for them, which in some cases was really serious. I talked to one woman who had a tumor on her pancreas that was missed because the functional medicine doctor or nurse practitioner she was working with was like, well, yeah, when your body is all inflamed, that's just how it is. And we have to heal this inflammation through this restrictive diet and these shakes and these supplements. And then you'll find relief, you know, just totally missing this tumor that was actually causing the problems. Yeah. Wow. That's really scary. One of the other things that I saw recently is that there's like um, a course you can take to become a functional medicine coach. And I feel like that lingo is so deceiving because there are functional medicine doctors and they are actually like nurse practitioners or doctors. And then now there's like, a, you can become a functional medicine coach and it's literally just like a year long program. And then you get to, I actually just looked into it because I was like, what is this? And you get, um, you can like take, you know, get your clients to take all these tests. And I'm just like, oh my God, like this is really scary. That's really scary that you're putting your... And, and by the way, like I actually do believe in like I have a really good naturopathic doctor that does a lot <laughs> of great stuff for me hormonally. So I don't want to say that like anything is all bad or all good. But like it is really scary to me when you see the way that 
the way that kind of like people can be trained to potentially like work with people on really serious medical conditions without having like any kind of background in sciences or biology or medicine. And even me becoming a nutritionist, I think back about what we learned in school and they were giving us like protocols to deal with like kidney issues. And, and I'm just like, and I remember at the time being like, I don't feel comfortable like giving someone this huge protocol to deal with a kidney issue. Like this doesn't feel right to me. And so, yeah, that's, it's a little bit, it's a bit, it's a bit worrisome in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I feel like functional medicine already is something I am very skeptical of because of its lack of strong evidence base. I think, you know, there's a lot of doctors and nurse practitioners and other providers in that space who really want to do good and want to help their patients and I think are coming from a good place. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, very early stage science or, you know, science that's just happening in like cells and animals that's being translated into humans that, you know, I think is really not appropriate to do that. It's not it's not ready to be used for clinical recommendations. And yet I see that happening a lot in the functional medicine space. But then, you know, but at least <laughs> at least there's there's people who are, you know, trained doctors and nurse practitioners and nurses and, you know, that could potentially order um, conventional treatments or conventional tests as well if the need arose, if they if they saw the need for that. And like if it's a coach who doesn't have any of that sort of training or the ability to even really, you know, order anything themselves, like they might have to refer out or whatever. But you know, who knows at the individual level, like whether they're going to actually be doing that, going to be referring to a doctor if it's, if it's necessary or not, you know, and just, yeah, it seems risky. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was like, how, what's your advice to people to move forward? Like how can people sort of watch it? Like what should people watch out for or screen in terms of information that they're finding or like practitioners that they're choosing to work with? Yeah, it's it's really a tricky world out there. And I think there's a lot of things that need to change. So, you know, I want to say, first of all, like this is not all an individual responsibility. These are systemic issues, I think, that need to be addressed at the societal level, too. And, and kind of first and foremost, you know, like addressing social determinants of health and foregrounding mental health, you know, not just sort of focusing on the physical and making health out to be this individual responsibility. Regulating the tech industry, I think, is also really important. Regulating social media so that we can reduce the spread of misinformation and disinformation and regulating the supplement industry, which in the U.S. and Canada is kind of the Wild West. It's like largely unregulated, really only regulated post-market. So things don't get tested for safety and efficacy before they go to market. They only could be recalled after they go to market. And in practice, the enforcement is really spotty and doesn't happen as much as it should. So I think like all of those things need to change and we need, you know, systemic level and societal level action on those things. Um, but that said, there are also things people can do, I think, to take care of themselves and at the individual level, sort of in in addition to and while waiting for the societal changes to happen. One thing is that I would just encourage everyone to try to approach alternative and integrative and functional medicine and the wellness industry in general, really, with as much skepticism or more skepticism as you would have for conventional medicine. Because I think, you know, as I mentioned before, like wellness culture and the wellness industry are really good at sort of fanning the flames of people's 
mistrust of the conventional healthcare system and sort of amplifying, amping up that message and proposing their offerings as a solution. And so just being skeptical of that and realizing that, you know, just because someone says something is natural or gentle or better than conventional healthcare doesn't mean that it actually is. And that, you know, I think we need to be probably more skeptical of the wellness industry and, you know, providers in this sort of alternative space because they have even less evidence behind them in a lot of cases. Not that there is nothing wrong, you know, there's there's a lot wrong with the conventional healthcare system too, but I think there's just even more to be wary of in wellness culture. I think also not to assume that, you know, wellness recommendations are based on any sound science, even when science is cited or even when, you know, like I think that a lot of alternative providers and sort of wellness culture you know, advocates and entrepreneurs really like to like claim to be super science based. And this is cutting edge research. And, you know, this is like at the forefront of medical knowledge and all this stuff. But, you know, another word for cutting edge research is just like really early stage research that isn't actually ready for prime time. You know, it's a lot of scientific research like there's a lot of exciting research that happens, you know, in early stages and then other scientists try to replicate it and can't. And that's like the vast majority of science. You know, there'll be like these promising results from a trial in rats or a, a cell experiment or a trial in like 10 volunteers or something. But then, you know, when it's replicated by uh, another group with a larger larger participant base and in humans, oftentimes, you know, really most often is, is the case that the results aren't replicated, you know? And so I think that's something to be aware of that when people are touting like cutting edge science or whatever, that it's, it's often just this really early stage research that isn't going to go anywhere. And um, so that's, that's another thing to kind of look out for. And then I would say too, like with any given wellness treatment or practice, just trying to be mindful of your own experience and, realize the the power of expectations, the power of the care effect and and how helpful that can be at first, but then recognizing that those things can also sometimes wear off. Like the placebo effect is is powerful, but it does sort of decline over time, especially when the treatment or protocol itself isn't itself effective. And so, you know, you might feel really hopeful when you're starting out, you might feel better, a little bit better, but then as time goes by, the good feeling starts to wear off and you're not sure your symptoms return. Maybe you get some new symptoms. You just don't know whether you're really feeling better. And then oftentimes what happens is wellness providers will recommend, you know, adding other treatments, adding other dietary restrictions, like becoming even more, you know, going further down the rabbit hole, basically, of of the wellness protocols and practices. So I think really being skeptical of that and just noticing like, okay, if it if it feels like the potential benefits of whatever I've been doing are starting to wear off, what would it be like to go back to not doing the thing, you know, and see any difference in my um, experience that way, or, you know, at least like not going further down the rabbit hole and adding more and more and more restrictions. Cause I think that's where it gets really disordered for a lot of people where people can really get into some seriously disordered eating and relationships with their bodies. And I think everybody is, you know, especially everyone listening to this podcast probably is, is at risk of disordered eating in this culture. I think very few people are not at risk. So just knowing when you're going into any sort of wellness practice or alternative medicine, you know, protocol or whatever that 
the the recommendations to cut out foods and dietary restrictions are, are going to put at risk your relationship with food and your body and to be really mindful of whether that's appropriate for you or not, you know, and, and in some cases, I think you can talk to providers and say, I have a history of an eating disorder or of disordered eating or, you know, I'm struggling in my relationship with food and I don't think that going on a restrictive diet is going to be helpful to me and just kind of see what they say, you know, and if they're supportive of that and willing to look at other treatments and not put you on a diet, that could potentially be a sign of someone who's who's good to work with. If they really double down and say, no, we have to do this and this is the only way, that might be a red flag and maybe, you know, it's potentially helpful to look for a second opinion, you know, switch providers if you can, if that's available to you. And I know access is sometimes an issue there too. So another, another, I think, helpful way to protect yourself from wellness misinformation and disinformation is trying to take a step back from social media and recognizing how it pushes us increasingly towards extreme content that isn't necessarily backed by good evidence and, you know, how it may have sucked you in already further than you'd intended. And so not looking to social media for your ideas of what to try or what to do. And I know that sometimes social media can be important for community and, and feel connected to other people who are going through similar things. But as much as you can, trying to like separate that from, you know, not using it to like diagnose or treat any condition and also not typing into a social media search engine or into Google without any sort of, you know, making sure you have like ad blockers and privacy protection on your computer so that you're not creating this like breadcrumb trail for the social media companies to use to retarget you because that happens. You know, a lot of websites have, you know, targeting like trackers on them that send your information back to Facebook and to Google and, you know, allow those ads to follow you around the internet for something that you once clicked on. Um, and that's creepy in and of itself. But, you know, the, the creepier thing is that they have these entire dossiers on all of us on like our behaviors, our demographics, our psychographics and you know, what we're interested in, including any wellness stuff that we're interested in or any health conditions that we have. And that can allow the algorithms to feed us some really potentially harmful content. So, you know, really trying to protect yourself from social media um, in that way. And then finally, I think one useful tool that, you know, would be like a whole other conversation I go into in more depth in the book, but there's this this strategy called SIFT that you can use when you come across wellness information online. And it was developed by a researcher um, at the University of Washington named Mike Caulfield, who studies digital media literacy. And it stands for its four steps, which are stop, investigate the source, find better coverage, and trace claims, quotes, and media to their original context. And I think that's a nice little heuristic for just like not getting too engaged with any wellness information or really any kind of information that you find online, but looking at the context first and deciding whether it's something that you really trust and whether it's something you want to give your time and energy to, or whether it's something that you rather, you know, sidebar and sort of look elsewhere for, for your wellness content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super, super helpful. And I, I really appreciated that approach because I feel like nowadays people will just take, you know, one tweet that they saw or, one thing that they saw, like one nugget of information that they saw in a headline and take it as, you know, as a fact and as truth. And, and we have to really like slow down and try to figure out, you know, where is this coming from? Is there validity to this? Like, cause otherwise we're just 
you know, taking whatever somebody just can make up and say, which is unfortunately happening, happening quite a bit of, which we found during COVID, right? And, uh, and it's, it's quite scary. And I think like, you know, social media trains our brain to just like see something and, and like take it as truth and really, you know, rapidly kind of digest little nuggets of information instead of like really slowing down and kind of, you know, going in depth with something and checking actually like looking into something. And, and it doesn't even take that much time I found because I've done that quite a few times with people that are, you know, people that have been, you know, somebody I knew from like high school who I still follow on like Facebook who posts like some sort of claim and, and I like looked it up and it was really easy to disprove in about 30 seconds. So I was like, wait a minute, like that's not even true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I appreciate all of those, all of those suggestions. And I really loved in your book how, yeah, you just went into so many different things. Like what does the research say about intermittent fasting and manifesting and yeah, like leaky gut and candida and all that stuff. So I highly recommend people pick up a copy to get into kind of the, the nitty gritty of it all. And as always, it was like extremely well-researched and, and well-written. So I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. It's, it's so good to talk with you. And I really, really appreciate you having me on and glad you like the book. Yeah. So where can people find you, Christy? Yeah. So people can find me on my website, which is christyharrison.com, um, which has all the links to my book and places to buy it. You can also get the book at any bookstore, you know, pretty much any major bookstore in North America um, or any indie bookstore. And um, I also have a new podcast called Rethinking Wellness, which continues on, you know, exploring some of the themes in the book and in this conversation, um, have lots more conversations with folks who, you know, study and, and experience different aspects of wellness culture. And you can find that just by searching for Rethinking Wellness with Christy Harrison or just Rethinking Wellness wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much, Christy. As always, it's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Rock on. As always, Christy has such a wealth of knowledge around these things. And I think that you will really enjoy reading The Wellness Trap. So definitely check that out. You can find all the links and resources mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 268. Thank you so much for being here today. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanin. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. 